Down to Business with Bobby Kerr. Brought to you by Bank of Ireland on News Talk. Now, instead of our normal newspaper review, we're going to take a look back at some of the stories of the year that have been occupying us, business stories, and indeed, some ones of a wider world. I'm delighted to be joined by three stalwarts of the newspaper review slot on Down to Business throughout the year. Uh, delighted to be joined by a businesswoman and broadcaster, Nora Casey. And I want to introduce Bob Hoffman from Vista Executive Search, and also Stephen O'Leary of Alitico people that regularly review the papers with us and I want to say thank you to all three of you for your contributions over the year. So we might start with, I suppose it's a, it's a subject that touches and I, I think we should start at a human level and that is the tragedy that is the war in Ukraine the displacement of people, the suffering um, it has had a, an incredible impact on those people and it, but it's also had an incredible impact on the world in general. Stephen, just your own thoughts around Ukraine. Yeah, I, I suppose in, in terms of if we look at the year um, and stories maybe you could have predicted on January 1st, this certainly wasn't one of them. And yeah. I think it came as a major shock um, to the whole world uh, when the conflict escalated as quickly as it did. I think from our point of view, you know, the role social media has played in that conflict and in terms of spreading the news is something that kind of feels almost unprecedented. Yeah. Um, certainly when we think about conflicts of the last maybe 20 or 30 years, um, you've seen just how much Ukraine has relied on that for spreading messages and getting the word out, you know, no more so than their president. Uh, and I suppose the role that uh, the network has played in terms of Amplifying the messages, putting pressure on those um, who need to come in and, and support and also asking for the world's help, really shining a light on what was happening here. Yeah, and it does, as you say, spotlight, you know, the actual, I suppose, I suppose the, the speed at which this war happens because everything, everybody knows about everything that's happening almost before it happens. Well, everyone who's in the field, most of the people in the field have a smartphone. Yeah. Um, and we've seen, you know, uh, like the importance, if you think about all the things that traditionally have been really important in war, right? So the very basic things like food and water and light and heat for the first time broadband has been critical in this war because you need to have access, yeah. not just for the technology that's being used in the field, but actually to communicate to get the message back, to get the message out. And what we're seeing is from the front line, regular videos, imagery, reports, and literally in real time, like you say, we're seeing this this kind of, this war play out. Bob Hoffman, we've seen, and again, I, I we've done our bit in relation to uh, taking the people from Ukraine into our country. I think we've done a remarkable job. It, I know things aren't perfect, but, you know, to, to accommodate the number of people uh, from I suppose, with no real notice. Uh, we haven't, as I say, it's not perfect, but I think we should be reasonably proud as a nation. I think we should be very proud, and of all the countries in the world, we threw our own people to the four corners of the world as refugees during the Great Famine. So we took in 50,000, which is actually proportionally exactly what we should have. Poland took in, I think, 1.3 million. So I think we've done a wonderful job in my hometown of Wicklow Town. The Ukrainians have become part of our, our culture and our society in the last 10 months really quick. Uh, they're lovely, lovely people. Who would have thought on that morning in February the global re 
reverberations around the world for energy, food, and then, of course, the human misery of it. And let's be honest, Putin is losing. He's trying to expand the agenda to uh, West versus the BRIC nations. He's trying to drive a, dry, a wedge between the two sides. He clearly can't win militarily, and he's now going after power and water. So he's going after people now because uh, he's lost military. He won't win. But look, it is where it is. Let's hope it, the war ends as soon as possible. Uh, last word to you on Ukraine, Nora, Nora Casey. Uh, again, thanks for coming in and good to talk to you. It, you heard from the boys there that, you know, that, that just the level of, of suffering is, is it's almost unfathomable. It was When I reflect on the year, it's only a few weeks into January, I remember the threat of Russian forces on the border and, and mostly amongst my contemporaries, nobody believing that this would escalate into a war. I mean, the biggest fear all of us have is a modern war mm-hmm. with a country that might have nuclear capabilities. Like, it's just too frightening to imagine. And then very quickly, we were seeing all of those images. As Stephen said, it was... Uh, this is how contemporary war is now communicated to us. You know, it wasn't through the news bulletins, it was through social media and the photographs that people themselves were posting. I was struck in the early days how quickly Ireland mobilised to to send help to Ukraine. Now, of course, now it's all about Ukraine people who are living within countries that have taken them in. But at that time, there was a desperate need to send pharmacy supplies and there was a huge groundswell of people getting on trucks and lorries and driving across Europe. It was quite, I think it was quite emotional to watch that happening. Absolutely. Now I remember sitting on your programme and um, we said something about homelessness and the fact that the Ukrainian refugee um, influx would shine a big spotlight on our homelessness. And that's exactly what it's done. Like we spent the weeks before Christmas talking about people still living in tents and, you know, we've a lot to do in that regard. And I think... Of anything that's happened over the last few years, you and I have done Shana Light Nights for 10 years. This has actually drawn the whole cross-party yeah. uh, cross support towards fixing that big problem. And the sad thing is that for every year goes on, the numbers, have, unfortunately, have yeah. been rising. Yeah, yeah, Sister Stan keeps saying, we've just reached record levels. It's a pandemic of homelessness. Yeah. And she says that every year at Christmas, you know. Um, back to you, Stephen. Um, I know this is a story that you love to talk about because we chatted about it many times throughout the year. Uh, Musk buying Twitter uh, and all that be- became before it, during it, and it, it, the, the, the story still is unfurling. The, the speed with which this story developed and went from, I, I, and this is, I mean, it, it's, it's almost hard to fathom, right? So, yes, it, it's been an incredible year for Twitter, an incredible year for Elon Musk. And I use the word incredible carefully there, not necessarily as a, as a positive term. But in April, that was when we first heard that Musk was building up this kind of level of stock uh, within Twitter. And then very quickly, the story changed. So initially it was, he wants a board seat. He wants to have a say there. And then emerged, that's not what he wanted. He wanted the entire company. But so many things happened simultaneously. And I think one of the strangest things about this story in its entirety is that in April, he wanted to buy the company. By May, the economy was changing. Technology was changing. Uh, the markets were changing and he changed his mind. He didn't want to buy, but it was too late. So the board had accepted the offer. They had agreed to the money and the offer was so much higher than their share price that they had this 
and I, again, I use this, this term carefully, a fiduciary duty, right? This term that says, well, it's in the interests of our shareholders. It wasn't in the interests of Twitter or their employees. No. It wasn't in the interests of Twitter users, but they had a fiduciary duty. And I think... If I look back on this entire story, I think that's almost one of the saddest things, that that's ultimately what drove the sale. You had someone who didn't want to buy the company, who changed their mind, but under the threat of being sued for billions of dollars, decided, OK, I'm committed, I'm going to go after it. Well, is it not also shocking, Stephen, that when he acquired the company, and even if he paid too much for it, which he clearly did, but that almost a reckless abandon that he went at, you know, and again, we're only seeing what we see unfurling in the public eye. Maybe there's stuff, but it just seemed to me that if you spent so much money on a business, how you would just go in it with a with a sledgehammer in the in with 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 no reflection on any consequence, be it on re- employee relations, shareholder value, any of the stuff that you would have thought that he was concerned about. But you take those two things and they're absolutely linked. So because he overpaid <clears throat> Had he paid half the price, then maybe he wouldn't have cut half the staff. Yeah. Because ultimately, as soon as the deal closed and it emerged essentially how much Twitter was worth versus what he had paid for it and the level of debt that the company was suddenly saddled with. Because again, Musk didn't have $44 billion in the bank and just say, OK, I'm going to buy it. There was huge debt taken on and that had to be serviced near immediately. And well, in order to do that, you, you cut the, the biggest overhead, which is people. But there's, a, there's also, is there not, a number of big banks in there who must be who must be looking at their loan note and saying, I'm, I'm not sure this was a great idea. And I think the only thing that can explain that are the other companies Musk owns. So they must be looking at Tesla, they must be looking at SpaceX, and they must be saying to themselves, this was worth the risk and this was worth the potential loss because the long-term potential payoff from a Tesla or SpaceX is so great and maybe Musk will side with us given that he is connected to us for this Twitter deal. Bob, as somebody in the employment business... I was about to say... I was was Mm. just... You know, when you looked at, you know, how Stripe dealt with their redundancies, the two guys stood up, they took personal responsibility, they they put it on their own and, and then... At the same time, you were getting people getting blind emails, yeah. uh, cutting people off from communication links. Really just bizarre stuff. This is from a guy who dances that thin line between pure genius and madness, and that is Elon Musk. And you got to take your hat off to the guy. But on this occasion, in 10 years from now in the recruitment and HR industries, people will be learning how to do it and how not to do it. And the Coulson brothers showed us how to do it with humility and a, a, a responsibility. You know, 50% of his staff, I can see that they're really going to struggle, unlike his other businesses. This is an intangible business. It's a people business. It's, it's you know, they don't make widgets. They don't make Teslas. They don't make space rockets. So he's going to really, really struggle to attract new people into that business after all this has settled. So I think the biggest issue in this, apart from the money and the users, is actually who's going to want to work for Twitter. Would you? Uh, Nora, what about the, even if we take the blue tick on the, uh, and the, the, the thing that he was talking about, oh, we're going to have to charge for this. Then no one said, oh, well, I'm not paying for that. Uh, then he reevaluates it, says, no, okay, we're not. But just... Almost the public indecision around some pretty basic commercial stuff yeah. uh, about putting the numbers right in there. 
Yeah, it is like you're <clears> listening to his brain, you know, you know, the cog wheeling all the time and he's no filter, so he just spurts it out. But I think, the, the, you know, the bigger issue is that he's had a domino effect on the rest of the tech industry. Like the tech contraction has been significant this year. And as soon as he kind of did all the warmongering thing about the economy and the advertising going down and the need for a revenue model, um, then we saw people like Facebook and others sort of looking at their staff complement as well. And in Ireland in particular, when he made all of those people redundant, and it's not clear yet whether there'll be legal challenges to that, these were people outside of the EU, mainly highly skilled people that mm-hmm. were recruited from all over the world whose visas are linked to their employment, were massively short of staff in all kinds of sectors. And yet we've just let go of some of the most highly skilled people in the world. And although the government has said he's, they're not going to you know, return them to their countries immediately, it's questionable as to where they're going to get employment here in Ireland, mm-hmm. if that mm-hmm. is something that we're going to see across that sector. And Stephen, when we talk about the tech sector, how much of the, you know, the layoffs that we've seen, maybe some we haven't seen yet, are down to actually the fact that companies aren't advertising? In other words, that the advertising is now controlled by so few players and it's such a big sum that any downturn in that has this effect across a huge amount of technical technology companies. I, that is, there's an element of that. But equally, we have to remember that the pandemic was an unprecedented time. And the biggest winners from a share price point of view during the pandemic were technology companies mm. because we weren't in the real world. We were online. You couldn't go into the real world. You had to go online to do most everything now, when the pandemic ended, or is in the process of ending, thankfully, we all returned to the real world and we were inevitably going to spend less time online. But that meant that some of these companies were going to become less busy. They would need less people. Their share price would come down. So suddenly, you know, these record quarter after quarter earnings that were being reported, there always had to be a correction of some sort. Yeah. And what you heard commonly, whether it was the Collison brothers or others, you know, right across the sector was, and and certainly some of them took responsibility for this, but they said, we grew a little too fast. We thought that the trend line of the pandemic wasn't going to end in 2022. And ultimately, it hasn't ended, but it's corrected. And I think what you're seeing here in terms of employment numbers is a correction. I'd just like to say a few weeks ago, Elon Musk did a call with all of the top advertisers on Twitter. Now, these are the top 10 advertisers. And because of his behaviour, Three or four of them immediately on the call threatened to withdraw all their advertising. So if his strategy was to try and, you know, ride the cash and, and get as much money in as possible, it didn't work. And no. I'd say that's why you're seeing all kinds of knee-jerk changes. Because as soon as they said, well, we're not going to be part of that, you'll have to change your model. He changed the model. Yeah. And if you're turning off the top line like that, you know, how are you going to pay the wages? Yeah. Nora, back to you. Um, there's no doubt that we've seen... Uh, maybe a displacement from the city centre, uh, the post-COVID trends of not so many people going into work in the cities, growth in the suburbs. But above all, we did see a commitment, did we not, from Irish people to try to buy local during the pandemic. And maybe, just maybe, some of that has stayed with us. Yeah, there's, I think there's two reasons for that. One is a lot of people during um, the pandemic, uh, they created the, digi- the answer is digital. What's the question? That was the favourite phrase. So they created it online in a way they kn- 10 years worth of work went into two years. And it created an egalitarian retail um, scene for them because 
people who might have shopped on Amazon, you know, and the difficulties with Brexit was in play at the time, were shopping more locally. Secondly, during COVID, we all treated ourselves a little bit more. And we liked the idea of, you know, eating good food and buying something that was made locally. I've seen over the last two years, certainly in the magazine sector, we're drowning in people who've launched skin products, gins, whiskies, bakery products, you know, retail, um, makeup, lots of fashion, lots of design. And it's just, it has been huge over the last year. And that coupled with this sense of a renewed interest in sustainability. It's been a big trend this year, climate change, people have been worried about the fast economy, certainly in terms of fast fashion. You saw in the run-up to Black Friday, there was a huge campaign across Ireland to support green and to buy local rather than going out and buying on these big online shops. So it's much overused phrase, perfect storm. But, you know, I was in Leitrim there before Christmas. I'm an ambassador for Leitrim, being a Leitrim hybrid myself. And, you know, in the room, there was loads of small producers that have mushroomed during uh, uh-huh. COVID. And it's so lovely to see, like, I think people who were working in corporate life who were maybe perloaded, but, you know, were laid off during COVID, just reassess their whole future and said, why am I doing this? What I've always wanted to do is make butter or cheese or great yogurts. And uh, we've got the benefit of that now. And I hope we still ride that storm into 2023. Stephen, have you uh, altered your shopping habits over the last number of years with with COVID, post-COVID, Nora's point there to supporting local and even the sustainability thing. I, I have to say, I'm sometimes, while I try and do the right thing around sustainability, I get really angry over people greenwashing uh, because that's the really, the bit, like whatever about your views about st- sustainability, but if you actually do the reverse, which is use somebody else's good cause to enhance your own fictitious beliefs. That to me is infuriating. Yeah, and look, I mean, aside from retail, we've seen that online in Ireland this year. One of the big changes around sustainability has been that exact topic. So we've seen the general public calling out greenwashing repeatedly online and particularly in the financial services sector. Those who fund companies who maybe aren't sustainable are being called out for the ones for, for providing the finance. Coming back to like those kind of personal changes that individuals have made, I think the thing that struck me most in terms of some of the, the examples Nora gave for me was Brexit because I would have shopped online and I would have shopped online regularly from stores in the UK. And what started to occur this year in a, you know far more frequently was the package would arrive and there would be a customs charge and it was well and above Mm. of what the the product was itself. Mm. And so what happened was I stopped buying from UK retailers and that was one reason, I suppose, we started to shop more locally and, and it's had a really positive effect there, but also even within Europe. So if I can't buy the product in Ireland, instead of looking online at the UK, I'll carefully check where it's being shipped from. And if it's being shipped from France or the Netherlands instead, well, then I'll definitely order from one of those stores because I know when it comes, I won't be hit by the charge. So definitely changes. And I think like a wide range of reasons for it. Thank good for Google Translate for those sites. Bob, have you been hit with many customs charges in when you're getting your online orders into Wicklow Town? You know, I'm a replica of what Stephen says. I absolutely stopped using Amazon.co.uk overnight when Brexit uh, hit in. And not just on the surcharges, but also consumer rights. If you buy something from a UK business, what are your consumer rights down the road regards warranties and whatnot? So I actively, for the last five years, have been 
been targeting EU-based companies and preferably Irish companies because mm-hmm. you know you know a little bit more. I often order online and actually collect from an Irish company. And I I've only I think this month is the first time I've bought from Amazon in about five years because they have their distribution centre here now. Bob, you wanted to talk about some of the the big stories of the year. Um, the national retrofitting scheme was launched mm. back in February of last year, aiming to make it easier and cheaper for homes to be retrofitted for energy efficiency. Yeah. Firstly, has it been a success? Was it welcomed? You know, were the intentions good but just executed badly? Give us your views. Okay, so before I say my views on this, can I just say I am a big fan of, of what the government's done over the last five years, in largely in part. For the country's had four waves that have hit it. Obviously, we've had Brexit, we've had COVID, we've had Ukraine, and now the cost of living. And I, I, I really am impressed how the government has, has handled themselves. But with this one, it was clearly a PR stunt. Eight billion is a massive amount of money for our country. It was announced in February. And let's be honest, you stop the average person in the street, nobody remembers it. Nobody knows the details, with the exception of maybe the solar panel grants, which are becoming hugely popular, and the solar panels are rolling out huge numbers. We have to retrofit 500,000 homes in the next eight years. Not a chance. How many have we done? I've no idea. I think it's around the 80,000 to 100,000. So I just don't think we're going to do it. Um, You know, the Climate Action Plan says we have to reduce our emissions by 51% by 2030. And they're looking at the houses. And I can see the sense behind it. It'll give the construction industry more work. You know, it'll generate uh, income right across the economy. But just they announced it. And if you stop, apart from solar, most people don't understand the grants. So I just think it was one of the few examples. It was it was 80% spin and the government need to go back to it because it's the largest single number the government have thrown on the table in the last five or six years. And it just evaporated like mist in the morning. Can I just say on that, that the, the lack of skilled labour availability in Ireland is huge. I spent most of this year waiting months and months for somebody to come and fix the boiler or help me with something in the house that I couldn't do myself. Like, it's impossible. I know it was a stimulus. The construction sector is booming. They just can't get enough staff. Isn't it ironic that if you were saying to somebody or maybe giving advice to somebody choosing a career path uh, and you said to them, would you like to do an arts degree up in UCD or qualify as an electrician? What do you reckon the the Mm. job prospects would be? Yeah, well, I'm telling you, we need plumbers, we need electricians, we need builders, we need plasterers, But this this thing of everybody having to go, you know, know, to third level institutions is absolutely going to come back to bite us in a big way, in my view. And and of course, now, you know, a lot of the, the people who were working in the sector have returned home to their own countries and that happened during COVID. And it's like... Personally, it's impossible to get anybody to do anything. We need to mimic the Germans where an apprenticeship is the first port of call and, you know, university to study something like economics or art is the second port of call. I hate to just, but we embraced an American model. Like, I mean, I think the number of degrees in this country has just gone into the quadruple thousand. Now you need a master's before you even get out. I have one I see you you had one through before Christmas. I had one on the way. I had the last one uh, just before Christmas. The last of four and I put my hashtag was no more fees. No more fees. I I still have the saving bank open for another year. (laughs) Uh, Stephen, one of the uh, Big stories of the year, and again, it's it's quite dramatic, and I, I know you have an intimate knowledge of it, but the, the FTX collapse, can you maybe just give us a little bit of the background of that story first, and tell us exactly uh, how it unfurled? Yeah, so this is a story that occurred in nine days. 
Um, and in nine days, essentially, tens of billions of dollars evaporated. They just were lost and they were gone. And I think what makes this a little bit different is I, I think in Ireland, the majority potentially of listeners here wouldn't have heard of FTX before now. But FTX was not an unknown company and it certainly wasn't an unknown company in the US where it was the title sponsor, the naming sponsor of stadiums. Imagine the Aviva Stadium in Ireland. There were FTX stadiums in the US. It took out Super Bowl ads. This was uh, a company endorsed by former presidents, by celebrities. It was a brand that millions, tens of millions of Americans knew about and millions of Americans had invested in. And literally within nine days, it went from having a multi-billion dollar valuation to essentially having gone bankrupt. And but but like all 11. these things, if we look, you know, after the event and it's easy to done, it's easy to do. There were in the Bahamas, two fellas on a board, no one else in, money being moved from one company to another company. Uh, the guy from Enron went in and said he was shocked about the level of of just corporate recklessness that was going on and no one knew about it. Yeah. So, and I know it's easy to say it after it, but like we're talking about, you know, a company with a with a valuation at one stage of thirty two billion. That was the valuation put to it. Yeah, and and there there will be you know this year we saw um, a, a range of, of TV and movie specials about Theranos. They had been yeah. kind of in production for for two or three years. Elizabeth Holmes. Yeah, yeah, and 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 after the fact, how are these incredibly wealthy billionaires who invested in her company not asking more questions? Why didn't they look behind the tech? Why didn't they? Why didn't they? Why didn't they? And that happens. In retrospect, we are all so very wise. The same is happening here, but the difference, unfortunately, this time is it's not billionaires who were heavily invested in this. It was regular Americans who had investments here and they're gone. And for some people, this is their their life savings and it does come back to regulation and it has shone a spotlight on cryptocurrencies in a way that hasn't been shone in the past. And I think that that is potentially going to be the biggest change we'll see in light of this story. I think people are going to think very, very carefully about the investments they're making in crypto and how safe those investments are. And that confidence is really hard to get back. Well, it's the old adage as well, if it looks to be too good to be true. And we heard all sorts of stories of people getting, you know, crazy multiples on investments around crypto. I never, and I've said it before, I, I would never go near crypto because I didn't understand it. I still don't understand it. <laughs> That's the problem. And, and, and I a, will never <laughs> go near it just because I don't understand yeah, it. But, yeah. but the problem with Theranos and the problem with crypto is like nobody really understands it. Like somebody, I have insomnia and somebody sent me a joke that said, have you, have you tried having a guy explain Bitcoin to you? <laughs> and, you know, the reality about some of these very complicated sectors is that people invest in them because they believe the hype. I mean, it's the same is true in some of the social media companies. I mean, massive overhyping. Yeah. Um, everything's about confidence. This year, we've seen confidence being dented in loads of different areas, and that's created real economic uncertainty. Do you, do you know the expression, the New York expression, you never find one cockroach, there's always more, right? So it's not just FTX, Coinbase, the, you know, the mother of all exchanges. I don't know if you remember, I had to sell on behalf of a deceased family member uh, a, a, a crypto portfolio. And when I instructed Coinbase to do it, you know, in, in a world of, of nanosecond transactions, three solid months and they sold it and and the estate lost uh, one third of the value of that portfolio. And the only reason they eventually sold it was we, we threatened the SEC, a formal complaint. 
And did you get to understand crypto while you were going through that process? What it was? Are you going to ask him to explain it? Well, explain I, I, I did. And I understand there's two parts of it. There's the community out there who do this thing called mining. You know, there's apartments all over the world with these boxes flashing lights that churn away number crunching, uh, the mining of these things. And it's just mathematical number crunching. That's one half of it. And then the other half of it is people, some knowledgeable, some not, who buy these things. But let's be honest. People say, oh, you know, money is run by central banks. Excuse me, the Americans and the Brits have been doing quantitative easing for 15 years. And for people who don't know what that means, that means printing money like wallpaper with no gold standard to back it up. So you could argue there's not a huge amount of difference between crypto and cash that the Irish government or the EU government produce. There's nothing really behind it other than one thing, confidence. And confidence has fallen now in crypto, fallen through the floor. All right, we'll take another break and uh, we'll be back shortly with more stories of the year indeed. Uh, Stay tuned. I'm with Bob Hoffman, Stephen O'Leary and Nora Casey. Um, Nora, back to you. Um, The tragic story of Ashleen Murphy was very, very... It's even hard to bring it just to, to talk about it now, but it had a profound impact on the nation. Huge. And, and I think it was the, the whole terrible randomness of somebody jogging and then suddenly no longer being in this world with us, you know, and the way in which she was taken. And she was such a beautiful soul and, you know, she'd lived such a beautiful life and her family were devastated. I don't think I've seen an incident that has created such a huge conversation around something that was so important, you know, issues around violence against women. I took part in loads of programmes talking about I, I walk Sandy Mount Beach in the dark in the winter into broad daylight. And I do that because there's lots of people around. So uh, lots of women came forward and said how scared they were to, you know, be out on their own. And uh, it shone a spotlight <coughs> in a way that nothing else has ever done. And over the course of the year, we've seen that develop into legislative reviews. Um, I myself just finished a a domestic violence documentary with Virgin just before Christmas. Um, We also saw the Garda Síochána renewing their efforts to help women who are victims of violence, both in the home and outside of the home. And uh, I think the report they produced back in December, in early December, saying that every 10 minutes they get a domestic abuse call. Horrific, yeah. Another great lady who we want to pay tribute to was Vicky Phelan. Um, did you know Vicky? I did. Yeah. It's still a bit raw, you know. I, um, I I helped raise funds for her documentary and um, I met Vicky on a number of occasions. She'd probably be jumping out of the grave now if she saw all the people who were um, promoting her documentary, which is fantastic. But in the early days, it was very difficult to get funding for that from any of the national broadcasters or, um, or some of the institutions. And I still think about Vicky being you know, somebody who was denied a life with her children. And back in 2018, if if you don't know that story, like it's, it's just incredible that in the run up to that court case, she was starting her first, um, she was starting Pembro for the first time, the experimental drug she'd fought so hard to get. And um, of course, her scans had been misread back in 2011. So here she is in 2018. And the the lawyers for both, um, you know, the, the smear test laboratories and the HSE were running between rooms trying to find a solution and um, and she was literally lying on the floor in the room in pain. She was so ill at yeah. the time and she said to me they tried their best to wear me down to get me to sign the non-disclosure to settle out of court and she just wouldn't do it. Like what kind of fortitude did that woman have? And then 
she had to go through that indignity in the court, which we all then discovered about Vicky because of that on the steps of the court. But, but what they made her go through in the questioning, uh. very personal details of her and her life. And, um, and she really gave up the time she had left in this world to help other women. Um, and I think, you know, my husband, of course, died in at 48 and it was after a very um, aggressive cancer and there's no part of me that could have talked about that at the time or shared that information and yet Vicky talked openly about it all of the time and made sure that people understood what she was going through. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I again, she changed the lives of, of women in Ireland and hopefully has changed women's health care. Yeah, that's a, and that's a lovely tribute to her, Nora, uh, by you. Uh, Bob, um, what were your thoughts on Vicky Phelan? Uh, what a legacy she's left, but what a, on on the back of what a tragedy. You know, and I don't mean to be flippant by this remark, but you know this term, not all heroes wear capes. And every now and then, it's usually somebody ordinary, somebody, and I don't mean she was ordinary, but just somebody who's not a celebrity or politician or an author, just somebody from from mainstream society who just says something that gets the whole uh, nation back on its heels. You mentioned the randomness of the Ashley Murphy uh, murder. You know, nobody should have gone through what Vicky went through. So um, I just look, you know, some of the things that women in Ireland, women everywhere, have to go through is just for for us men. We can't get our heads around it. Um, And I just think the nation should have, uh, or sorry, not the nation, the nation's leaders should have done more uh, because it was quite clear as this was going along what she was saying was made a lot of sense so I think she'll be up in heaven and she, she'll be very proud of, of what she started Yeah uh, Stephen your thoughts? Yeah I think maybe to pick up on a couple of the points there I think the issue of NDAs is something that has come to the fore um, this year not just in the case of Vicky Phelan but um, right across the Me Too movement and others and it's really now shone a spotlight on essentially, whether NDAs should be permissible. Whether Where you're it, trying to buy silence, effectively. Uh, particularly in anything to do with um, uh, health, security, um, sexual assault, any of these kind of things, that, that the appropriateness of an NDA essentially silencing somebody. Yeah. Um, and I think there has been a, there's been a real increase in conversation about that. And, and again, I think that's probably the other point for me. It, it's conversation, right? So I think there was, there was incredible shock um, you know, in relation to, to both these um, these people this year. But it has also got a country talking and it has got, I, I would hope certainly, and I'm talking from personal experience here, I think it's got an awful lot of men talking about something that possibly wasn't as much sure. on their radar or certainly wasn't uh, as high up uh, either their agenda or radars as it has been in the past. And, and I suppose the hope from all of that is that that conversation leads to change yeah. and that that's the legacy that we that agree, we see. Stephen. The, the one great thing has, has been hearing voices of men. I've always believed that, you know, women will never change issues around women. It's, it's men and women together. And um, I was really impressed over the course of the year about how many times men stood up and spoke out and all of the political parties have um, engaged in conversations about women's health in particular and trying to improve things around women's health. So it did have this... Uh, Terrible tragedies that created positive impact in our society. I yeah. Think. Okay. Um, one of the other, I suppose, uh, inconveniences for many over the year was, air, let's call it airport chaos. Uh, <laughs> we saw it in 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 many guises. I think maybe uh, it emerged, I suppose, post COVID when a lot of the 
uh, qualified staff around security, etc., were let go and weren't there when the numbers came back. But one of the things that caused the chaos was, I suppose, the incredible rebound that the airline industry enjoyed. I don't think anybody was ready for it. I don't think the airlines themselves clearly weren't expecting it. The airports uh, certainly struggled with it, but it was on the back of this massive pent-up demand to get back on a plane and to get out there. Stephen? I have a huge amount of sympathy for an awful lot of people in this story, and I I think it is also important to remember in the context of a lot of the other things we talked about um, uh, today that, yes, this was important, but also there was levels of importance here, right? So for some, they were inconvenienced. For some, it it was a bit more serious. But... It's the unknown. Again, and we've, we've spoken about this a lot today. We're all really wise after the fact. So now we know there was, you know, God, there was so much demand. Of course, we needed more people in the airport. How did they not anticipate that all that pent up money was going to be spent in one go and people would travel, etc.? Again, that, that you, can't, you can't instantly scale up, particularly in an airport where security clearance is so vital. You know, we want when we go to an airport to feel secure. It's probably the number one thing we want when we when we travel. We want to know that the airplane is safe. We want to know that the checking procedures are safe. We want to know that the security, all of those things. We, we rely on feeling safe in airports and when we travel. Now, you can't do that unless the people you hire are trained, vetted, cleared. You can't do that instantly. You can't take someone in on a Monday and say, you start on a Tuesday. There's weeks and months of planning that goes in. And what happens then is when you get a sudden surge in demand and you don't have the people there, you get the bottlenecks. The only thing I disagree with you on is, and I said at the time, in the same way that you say you can't predict you know, when COVID was going to end. In January, we started seeing, you know, all of those restrictions unravelling. But how could they have predicted during those two years that they could let go of so many of their security staff? Because if you remember during those two years, we didn't know month to month what was happening. We were constantly being told we were going to be released from lockdown. And yet for a company to have that level of, you know, I suppose, courage to say, well, we can afford to let all these people go without knowing what their future, their future could have been two months from that rather than two years. But it comes back to something Stephen said earlier, you know, uh, does it come back to shareholder ba- value and does it come back yeah. to a board meeting Bobby, and what I, are all the, those people out there doing when we've got no business? The, the most interesting documentary will be on that because, you know, I was flying all over the place. Firstly, the amount, I, I can't believe the amount of patience people have. Look, I, how many times was I dropped in the pitch black at three o'clock in the morning to stand outside in the car park and wend my way through that queue in order to get in? I was prepared to do it in order to go somewhere. So secondly, it didn't affect all airports. I was travelling all over the world at the time and not all airports were impacted. So it's definitely worth Bob, the it's, view. It's, <laughs> wor- it's worth saying, of course, for fear of stating the obvious, we're an island. We really do depend on our airports. This story was about two things, time i.e. the amount of time that it took for the public to start travelling, which was much shorter than we thought, and the amount of time, as Stephen said, for the authorities to hire the people. But ultimately, it was a recruitment cock up. They couldn't recruit the people. The only people, in fairness, was Ryanair. They let go very few of their people and they bounced back real quick. This was a recruitment issue. But is there not also, and you talked about it there, but even in a more general level, hasn't travel become much more complex? Yeah. Like, so now you're going to the States, you're going to Europe, you just you almost have to just put by a day and say, there's a day going, there's a day coming yeah. back, yeah. and you have all the stuff that you've got to go through, your COVID vaccination, yeah. you know, your computer out of the bag, all 
just it just every single thing is time it's money and it can be very very stressful hugely and I know the way I deal with it is I go into a kind of a a zen place where I'm travelling <laughs> I, I go with the intention that nothing is going to upset me here yeah. well, regardless you, I, of what happens I came out of, I, I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes this year a post-Covid metabolic crash thing and the first time I tried to go on a plane it was to London and I was running so much I didn't know stress ate your blood sugar so because fainted the minute I got on the plane <laughs> I fainted on every airport I think because if I got stressed like the level of sugar yeah. depletion that happened to me was catastrophic. They so. should all hand out a couple of Valium tablets to all of us as we arrive <laughs> at the airport. And so. the other thing that changed is I learned how to just uh, pack a small bag because no way I was putting it well, into the Well, that's the other thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. you go now with the Irish Times on your laptop and yeah. off you go. Well, yeah. Yeah. You can buy it as that. you go, Stephen. We talked about the topic of sustainability a little earlier and that is one other interesting thing to maybe note here because there is still a difference, I think, in generations. Uh, when it comes to particularly maybe air travel. And what we learned during the pandemic was actually a lot of travel we had been doing, particularly for work, was unnecessary. Yeah. Yeah. Right? There wasn't the need to do any, to sign a any amount of yeah. So yeah. things changed. And yeah. what happened there was, again, the accountants took a look at the bottom line and went, well, we can save a ton of money here by doing things. But the other half of that is sustainability. Yeah. And, you know, on the one hand, if we want to live in a better planet and be more sustainable well then air travel is one of the things people have to look at and consider and I think that's something that's really going to be on the agenda in 2023 Just before we close out Stephen I I thought it might be nice to talk about uh, some of the unicorns that we've seen uh, coming out of Ireland, Flipdish uh, Wayflyer, uh, Transfermate um, like a unicorn, a, a company with a billion dollar valuation it's almost when you think about it you say how could we be creating such things here? Yeah, and it's a testament to the talent uh, that exists in the country and talent in lots of different ways because I think often when we think about um, unicorns, we think of technology, we think of engineers, we think of developers and they are central to the building of a lot of this. But we also have to have incredibly talented people who can run companies and manage people. Um, and I think you look at someone like Sinead Fitzmaurice and Transformate and there is essentially the shining light, arguably one of the most successful business people in the country. Um, an incredible company, as you say, a unicorn. But with Wayflyer, you've got a younger generation again who've kind of built from from almost a standing start uh, a company value now at 1.6 billion. And what's critical with them is they're funding the next generation of companies. Yeah. So their business model is to finance smaller companies who want to get ahead and want to get started. And their model is fascinating. You know, that percentage of sales that they, they take back because they're giving the money to the company to grow. So there's so much good in this. And I think, again, when we look at the year, we know it's been a difficult year for technology. We know it's been a difficult year for, for certain companies in certain sectors. And we know there have been layoffs. But these three companies, Flipdish, Wayflyer and Transformate, would, would make you really confident about the talent that exists in <clears throat> Ireland and where businesses can go. Bob, uh, your area of recruitment, again, we saw lots of, I suppose, uh, different scenarios unfolding uh, within the Irish employment scene, hospitality, hard to get people, uh, minimum wage going up, people now talking about a living wage. Uh, And then, you know, acute shortages in some sectors. And then as we spoke about earlier, you know, some sectors such as, you know, uh, uh, fintech and that laying people off. So Mm. what's your... What's your view? It, it, do you need to be more transferable in terms of what you offer uh, as as a solution to employers in that 
really that it's not about being in sales, it's about being in... Do you know, I, I don't want to sort of wave a flag for the recruitment industry above anything else, but if you think about it, capital and human capital are the two things every business needs. Yeah. You know, I mean, no business operates without people. I don't understand why every business leader in Ireland, when, when somebody says, who are your closest trusted advisors, the first one is... My, my, my recruitment, whether it's an internal team or an external agency, and maybe the second, reluctantly, is my bank or my financier. Or, or your accountant, maybe. Up. But yeah. wh- why is that? You need money and you need people. And why aren't they? You know, recruitment gets a, gets a bad rap. I think, uh, a shout out to my, my, my competitors out there, guys, stop working for free. Recruitment Nora, industry. Nora, last word to you. It's been a, an interesting year. Yeah. We've had a nice conversation about many aspects of it. Uh, business-led, but we touched on lots of human things as well. Are you optimistic going forward now into 23? When I think about the year, I've often said um, about myself that it's not what I did in life, but what life did to me. And I think that for Ireland, it really wasn't what Ireland was doing this last year. It was what was happening around it. Our nearest neighbours on both sides, Britain and the US, Ukraine, Russia, all of the difficulties with supply chains. So for the year ahead... We can't necessarily predict those kind of things. Personally, I'd rather see 100,000 brilliant SMEs properly funded, supported and mentored than 10 unicorns. Yeah. I mean, I really feel that's our future in this country. I, I know I'm not going to go on about corporation tax and our heavy lean on it. It really is time that we stopped chasing the pharma, the fintech and just concentrated sometimes in bricks and mortar businesses that employ people here in Ireland here, here. and aren't just driving up their cash to sell on to an international company. Well, on that very positive note, I thank my three newspaper reviewers who, as I said earlier, have been with me on many occasions over the Saturdays on Down to Business reviewing the papers. My big thanks to Nora Casey, uh, Bob Hoffman and Stephen O'Leary. Happy New Year to you all. Happy New Year, Bobby. Down to Business with Bobby Kerr. Brought to you by Bank of Ireland. Saturday morning at 11 on News Talk.